Our second reading this morning comes from Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 11. And I'm going to be reading in the New International Version. Hear the word of God. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, um, rather in humility value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the other. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. You are the very living word of God. We pray this uh, Easter Sunday that you would send us your Holy Spirit so that the bonds of fellowship might be real and palpable. We pray that uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, which inspired the words of Scripture, that we would be illuminated this day. We pray that you give us ears to hear what it is that you need to say to us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So it was the resurrection of Lazarus which triggered the crucifixion of Jesus. And then that crucifixion was followed of course, by the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Lazarus preceded the resurrection of Jesus by about two weeks. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, people went bananas. Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha, two of Jesus' followers. The Bible tells us that Jesus loved Lazarus. To be sure, before Lazarus was resurrected, Jesus had a large following. Big crowds came to hear him teach, but after this miracle, a stampede of people rushed to Jesus. And why not? If a teacher of the law shows up and he is not only wise and kind and good, but he also raises people from the dead, wouldn't you follow him? You'd be crazy not to. And in case you're just a bit skeptical, and I do encourage people to be skeptical, in case you're a bit skeptical and you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe Lazarus wasn't really dead. Maybe he was just sick. Maybe he was in a coma or something like that. 
In case that's what you're thinking, in case you're thinking that the report of the raising of Lazarus was an unscientific exaggeration of what reality happened, then think for a minute about the details in the eyewitness accounts. Lazarus was sick for a while before he died. His sisters sent to Jesus to ask for his help while Lazarus was still alive. But Jesus decides to linger where he is, and in the meantime, Lazarus apparently dies. And the sisters mourn, and they prepare his body for burial, and after all of the customary preparations, Lazarus is placed in a tomb. His sisters had handled his body over and over again. If he had been alive, if his body had been warm, they would have noticed. And then the funeral happens. And he lay in the tomb, and not just a little while, but for four full days, his body was already rotting, it was stinking, Lazarus was really dead. And then finally, Jesus arrives in Bethany where Lazarus was buried. Jesus goes to the tomb and he calls out in a loud voice and he says, Lazarus, come out! And the once dead, now alive, man walks out of the tomb, still wrapped in his burial garments like a, a, a walking mummy. So many people saw this miracle and flocked to Jesus that the leaders of the Jewish nation were alarmed. They were afraid of the Romans, afraid that the Romans would use this riot of activity around Jesus as an, as an excuse to squash The fragile Jewish nation, Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, advised that it was better for one man, namely Jesus, to die rather than the whole nation. It would be better to sacrifice one innocent Jew, Jesus of Nazareth, so that the whole Jewish nation might be saved from Roman destruction. That was Caiaphas' logic. The apostle John reports, this is John 11.53, From that day on, from the day Jesus raised Lazarus, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Now, it wouldn't be long before the plans of the Jewish national leaders were accomplished. About a week, Jesus was given a shady trial. He was put to death by Romans at the behest of Jewish leaders. It was an ugly, messy affair for sure. Men like Caiaphas didn't like working with the Roman occupiers. They didn't like seeing a Jew put to death even if that Jew was a rabble rouser. But there are times when leaders must make hard and unpleasant decisions. Caiaphas struck the shepherd so that the sheep would be scattered. So imagine the fear felt by Caiaphas and the other priests who had arranged the death of Jesus when one of the soldiers posted at Jesus' tomb came running to them to report that there had been an earthquake and that the tomb had opened and that an angel had appeared and that the angel said that Jesus had been raised and that going into the tomb the soldiers saw with their own eyes that sure enough Jesus was not there. He was nowhere to be found. Imagine their fear. 
Men who kill other men are haunted by those they've killed. Edgar Allan Poe, in his short story, The Telltale Heart, captures the horrors of conscience of one who has shed innocent blood. But now imagine the double horror when the one you have killed won't stay dead. Not more than two weeks separates the resurrection of Lazarus from the resurrection of Jesus. And in those two resurrections, Jesus doubly proves that while he is human, he is no mere human. While he is a carpenter from Nazareth, he is not just a carpenter from Nazareth. While he is a teacher of the law, he's not only a teacher of the law. Something else is going on with Jesus. Something supernatural. Jesus was truly God. But he took on the likeness of a man. Now in most ways, God is veiled from our view... But two parts of ordinary human experience convince all reasonable people that there is a God. A God who is somehow behind and beyond and beneath the existence of everything that we see and know. Those two ordinary experiences, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant summed up in the phrase, the starry heaven above me and the moral law within me. We look around us at the wonders and the beauty of the world, at the vastness of the cosmos, at the intricacies of life, and the mind is compelled to ask, how did all this stuff get here? Why is there something rather than nothing? And why is it all so beautiful? And to those questions, there is no logical or consistent answer except God. The soaring vault of the starry heaven raises my mind to God. And the same goes for the moral law inside of me. Why do I have a conscience? Why do I have an irresistible sense of right and wrong? Ordinary house cats toying with a captured mouse don't. Wild foxes raiding the hen house don't. Invasive plants destroying a natural habitat don't. These living beings that kill and eat and destroy, they do it without the slightest pang of conscience or guilt or remorse. So why are we so different? Why do we have a sense of fairness? Why do we value each living individual? Why do we protect the weak? Evolutionary theory has no intelligent answer to those kinds of important questions. But common sense, natural reason leads our minds straight to God. If there is a moral law, natural reason tells us that there is a law giver. The profound depths of human conscience which separate us from every other living species on the planet, raises our minds to God. The starry heavens above me and the moral law within me lead a healthy mind to thoughts of God. 
The Apostle Paul put it this way, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that we are without excuse. If we are in our right minds, if we have not drunk the Kool-Aid of anti-rational materialism and atheism, then we do sense that behind and beyond and beneath all the wonders of this world and all of the depths of our soul, there is God. Now for sure, God remains largely veiled, mostly hidden. But what else could we expect? Because God is totally other. God is not in or of this world. Think for a moment of the relationship between God and our world, like the relationship between a video game programmer and the multiplayer game that he creates. A game that contains its own universe, its own internal rules, its logic, its characters. There is a connection between the game and the programmer, but the programmer is not in the game. He lives in Palo Alto, California. He is entirely other. He is like God. But God, a few times in history, chose to break into our world. It happened twice within two weeks when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and when Jesus' father raised him from the dead. These events make no sense within the rules of this world, within the rules of the game. They violate the internal laws of physics. They violate the internal rules of natural causality. And yet, these events undeniably happened. Lazarus was undeniably dead, and then four days later, he was undeniably alive. Lots and lots of people witnessed this event. I've been to his tomb, Lazarus' tomb. Not the one in Bethany, where he was first buried, but the one in Larnaca, Cyprus, where he was buried many years later, when he died a second time. Yeah, poor Lazarus got to die twice. After he was raised by Jesus, Lazarus had to flee Judea because there were people who wanted to kill him. And so he fled to the island of Cyprus, and then later Paul and Barnabas, who had evangelized the island, appointed Lazarus as an overseer at the church uh, in Larnaca. Well, it was called Kition in those days. And there his body lies till this day, the twice-buried man, Lazarus. And like all who have fallen asleep in Christ, Lazarus this day continues to wait for the final resurrection. In his case, it'll be his second resurrection. And I can't wait to meet him. I think he's going to have some very interesting stories to tell. About two weeks after Lazarus's first resurrection, Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, he had only been dead three days. There's no doubt about his death. It was a gruesome public death. And there also is no doubt about his resurrection. More than 500 people met the resurrected Jesus. From a strictly historical point of view, we have better historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than we do for many commonly accepted historical facts about kings and emperors in ancient times. 
I understand, of course, that the resurrection of Jesus was strange, that it was an unusual event, but it was nevertheless a real historical event. It's not some, I don't know, ethereal spiritual experience. It's not some feverish psychological delusion. The resurrection of Jesus was something that just happened. can't explain why, but it did. Now, I'm talking to you today, this Easter Sunday, in the year 2020, because of what happened on the first Easter Sunday around the year 33. There would be no church if there hadn't been a resurrection. If the shepherd had been struck and left dead, without a doubt, the sheep would have scattered and they would have all been forgotten by now. But the truth is that Jesus was raised from the dead, strange as that is, and the people who were a witness to that resurrection could not stop talking about it. This morning our reading from the Gospel of Matthew and our reading from Paul's epistle to the Philippians both touch on the nature of Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew is an historical account of the life of Jesus. We don't know who wrote this Gospel. The author doesn't give his name. But we do know that it was written for the whole world to read. It is a public pronouncement. The epistle to the Ephesians, uh, I mean to the Philippians, is rather different. It was written by Paul to the first church that he had founded in Europe. It is a personal and intimate letter, one part of a longer ongoing correspondence between this church and its church planter. While the Gospel of Matthew states for the whole world to hear, the events of Jesus' life and ministry, the epistle to the Philippians, contains homey words of instruction and encouragement to a beloved church written by the founder of that church, even as death looms for that man. The saints at that church in Philippi knew the details that were contained in the Gospel of Matthew. They would have been thoroughly schooled in the historical events that formed the foundation of our faith. What Paul does in his letter is not offer historical details, but rather theological analysis. In verses 6 through 11, we have a passage that has come to be called the hymn of Christ. The text of the letter shifts all of a sudden from prose to poetry. And it may be that Paul is quoting an existing hymn about Jesus, or it may be that Paul himself composed these lines. We're not sure. But however these lines came to be, they sing the praises of Jesus. Let's listen to them one more time. Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place 
and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this hymn starts with the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is God. Remember, we talked about God as that which is behind and beyond and beneath the world as we know it and brings this world into being. God creates the world, but God is not in the world. The way a computer programmer creates a video game, but is not in the game. Jesus is God. And yet, Jesus is also in our world which is a great mystery, the mystery of the incarnation. Jesus bridges the gulf between creation and creator. Jesus is both creator and creature according to his two natures. Jesus is divine. He is God. He created and sustains the entire universe. But Jesus is also human. He was a creature within the universe, dependent for his very life upon His mother's body and upon Almighty God, fully human, fully divine, the mystery of the incarnation. But that's not what interests Paul here. What has captured Paul's mind is the thought that though Jesus is God with all the power and the glory and the authority that that entails, Jesus never took advantage of those perks of Godhood. Jesus could have lived on this earth without ever having suffered or had troubles. He had the power to create anything he needed. But he chose instead to empty himself and to take on the form of a servant. But why? Why would God give up the perks of Godhood to experience human existence? Mark Twain wrote a novel titled The Prince and the Pauper, in which two boys who happen to look identical, but are born into very different worlds, change places. The prince takes it into his head as a lark, as an adventure to switch places with the pauper. You know, the grass is always greener on the other side, and it makes for a very amusing story. But Jesus, taking on the appearance of a human servant, is infinitely greater of an abasement and a humiliation than a human prince taking the place of a human pauper. So why does he do it? The writer of Hebrews identifies two reasons, two reasons why God would choose to become a man and suffer the life of a man. We read, For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Two reasons for God becoming flesh in this little passage, let me take them in reverse order. First, in verse 18, we read, Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There is nothing that we experience in life that Jesus did not experience first. 
Jesus gained the experience of what our lives are like. Whatever troubles you have suffered, Jesus suffered first. Whatever temptations you experience, Jesus experienced them first. And even death, the final trouble of this life, Jesus tasted death for us. He knows what it means as a human to face and to endure every single kind of trouble this life can throw at us, which means he is in the position to be our merciful high priest. Now, I don't know if my son, John Calvin, thinks of me as a merciful father. But I know for certain that there were many times when he was growing up and getting into trouble at school that I was totally sympathetic to his situation. Because when I was growing up, I also was always getting in trouble at school. I experienced the kind of teachers Calvin experienced, so I wasn't surprised when he was disrespectful toward those in authority because I was disrespectful to those same people. Having much the same character as my son, even though he is much nicer than I was at his age, it is easy for me to sympathize with him. And Jesus, having lived the same troubled life that we live, through that experience, is able to sympathize with us. To be merciful because of his personal experience. That's one of the reasons why Jesus gave up the perks of heaven to live for a while an earthbound life. So that he could be your merciful high priest. The second reason that Jesus willingly became a human, jumped across that gulf from creator to creature, was so that he could be an atonement for our sins. Here's what we read in Hebrews. He had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Now this idea is a little harder to grasp, so hang with me for a little while as I take a detour through the theological debates of the 4th century church. Leading up to the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, there was a lot of debate within the church about the exact nature of the incarnation, the nature of Christ himself. Some people thought that Christ was not really a human, but that maybe he was just purely God and that Jesus of Nazareth was some kind of avatar or a puppet that God was using. Some people thought that Jesus of Nazareth was not really divine because how could God die? Holding together the witness of Scripture, which affirms both that Jesus was human and that Jesus was divine, it's not an easy matter holding those two things together. And it takes the church a long time to come to some settled conclusions about what Scripture teaches. One of the key players in the debate was Gregory of Nazianzus, who realized that the essential issue in the incarnation, in God becoming flesh, the essential issue is the atonement, the means by which God deals with our sin, the means by which God redeems his people from death. Gregory's famous formula was, quote, what is not assumed is not redeemed. By which he meant that if Christ, the second person of the Trinity, did not assume or did not take on to himself a real human nature, then 
human nature is not redeemed. In Jesus of Nazareth, God becomes flesh. And by the sinless life, unmerited death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, God atones for human sin. We don't atone for our own sin. God atones for human sin, and he redeems humankind from bondage to sin and to death. Jesus became fully human in every way in order that he might make atonement for our sins. Now that's some pretty advanced theology, I know. But you're all smart people and today is Easter and if we can't talk about big mysterious truths on Easter, when can we talk about them? Now, let me see if I can state this as simply as possible. There is a God who is behind and beyond and beneath all that we see. God who made us and God who set down some basic rules about how he wants us to live. Those basic rules bring honor to God. They bring health and blessing to the creation. But none of us, unfortunately, has ever lived in the way that God told us to live. All of us have sinned. And in our sin, we have damaged our relationship with God. God, however, in his love for his creation, God in his jealousy for his own glory, redeems what we have Marred. Now, some people don't grasp this fundamental truth, but God's wrath and God's love are two sides of the same coin. God hates sin because God loves his creation. And God in his love for us and God in his wrath against sin decides to bear that wrath and the penalty of our sin in his own body on a cross. He did that so that we could be redeemed. That's what happened at Calvary. And then... Three days later, on the first Easter Sunday, Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, gets up out of a borrowed grave, never to die again. He ascends to the Father, where he lives in glory, and from there he's going to return one day to earth, and we will see him as he truly is, fully and gloriously God fully and gloriously human, the good shepherd of the sheep who was struck down in the vain hope that the sheep would be scattered, but the agents of death didn't know who they were dealing with, and the good shepherd arose from his grave. And he cares for us today. And one day soon, he will bring us to be where he is forever. Now this is a decidedly strange Easter Sunday. I'm here in the HVPC sanctuary with about nine other people. I miss seeing all of you, even though I know more of you are watching our services online than ever sat in our pews. I hope this day is full of resurrection joy for you. I hope that you have been grabbed by the gospel. I hope that you've been shaken awake by the Holy Spirit. I hope that you have been given the privilege of seeing into this great and many-layered mystery. I'd like to close this service on Resurrection Sunday with the final lines of the hymn in Philippians chapter 2, where we hear, God exalted Jesus to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. 
in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have you bowed your knee to King Jesus? Everyone eventually will, whether they're in heaven, whether they're still on earth, or whether they're in hell, everyone will eventually bow their knee to Jesus. If you bow your knee to King Jesus in this life, then the person you bow before is your Redeemer. He is your Savior. He is your Good Shepherd, your brother, your friend. And you bow in worship, and you bow in joy, and you bow in adoration. Now I know that bowing the knee to anyone can be hard for some of us. Because bowing your knee to anyone means dethroning yourself. And we really are born thinking that the whole world should be bowing to us. At least that's how I came out. Bowing your knee to King Jesus means recognizing that you are not self-made. That you are not self-sufficient. That God created you and that God sustains you. Bowing your knee to King Jesus means recognizing that you are not a law unto yourself. You don't get to make up the rules. But King Jesus is the living word of God who one day will judge every person. Bowing your knee to King Jesus means recognizing that you are not God. But Jesus is. Those who do not bow to King Jesus in this life will bow to him in the life to come. But they will bow before him as the judge who condemns them eternally. Now if you've been holding out, thinking that maybe you can make a decision about bowing to Jesus a little bit later, then I encourage you to not wait. The coronavirus has been reminding us of something that has always been true, but that we've largely pushed out of our minds. It's been reminding us that we have no guarantees of tomorrow. Sudden death can come to anyone. And after death, there are no second chances. The time to turn from self-will to God's will is now. The time to stop worshiping King Ego, King Self, and to start worshiping King Jesus is now. His name is above every name. And one day, every knee will bow to him. All to the glory of God the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we honor you and we worship you this Resurrection Sunday. Lord God, we confess that uh, we're amazed, we're bewildered, we're flabbergasted by your willingness to die for us. And we're astounded that your Father raised you from the dead. Lord Jesus, we look forward to that day when we see you face to face. We thank you that you have given us the faith to cling to you. We pray on this Resurrection Sunday that the troubles of this world, 
the troubles of our times, the anxieties that we have and the fear that we have, the frustration that we're experiencing. We pray that all of those troubles would be overshadowed by your great glory. We pray that your light would flood every corner of our heart and our life and our world. Lord Jesus, we know that this world is not all that there is. We know that someone outside of this world caused this world to come into being. And so we look forward to that day when the veil is rent and we see behind the curtain and we see the true mystery revealed. We look forward to that day when we see you face to face. Prepare us for that day. Give us joy in this day. Give us strength for the trials of this day. But whet our appetites for eternity with you. This we pray in your sweet name. Amen.